Casey Lagacion is a Master of Environmental Studies candidate at the University of Pennsylvania. His research presents a reimagined understanding of social media through the lens of degrowth. This project will culminate in a short film set to premiere in September of 2022. Outside of their research, Casey is a member of the web collective degrowth.info and a member of a nascent housing cooperative in West Philadelphia. Casey Legacion, welcome to the One Planet podcast. Thank you for having me. So, you know, you're part of this group, Degrowth. Just explain to us, for those who don't know, what is Degrowth and how can we get there? Yeah, so Degrowth is a word with many meanings, but one way I would describe it is perhaps starting with the history. So degrowth as an idea uh, has intellectual roots in the environment's critiques of the 60s and 70s found in landmark works like Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, The Club of Rome's Limits to Growth Report, Nicholas Georgescu Rogan's The Entropy Law and the Economic Process, which was, I guess, a seminal piece of economic theory that applied the laws of thermodynamics to the economy, which was very influential for ecological economics, which is intertwined with degrowth. But degrowth was first formulated in 1972 by French philosopher André Gors in a public debate where he used the term decroissance to question whether planetary stability was compatible with capitalism. And yeah, in the 70s, then this idea of degrowth or decroissance really began to spread through France and then other countries in Europe. And then it really garnered broader international attention in 2008 at the first international degrowth conference in Paris. And that's where the word degrowth was actually translated into English. And so, yeah, at the core of degrowth is just this critique of capitalism and then this critique of the growthism that lies at the center of capitalism, this pursuit of infinite economic growth on a planet with finite resources. And so therefore, one way I would define degrowth is as this collection of ideas and practices that one, critique societies that are driven by this need to pursue infinite economic growth and to cultivate alternative ways of living that center around socio-ecological well-being. And another thing I would say at the core of degrowth is this facilitation of a number of interconnected socio-ecological transformations that lead to conditions in which people have the autonomy to create their own versions of the good life, whatever that may be, so long as it's within interpersonal and biophysical limits. That's one way to describe degrowth. And I think that broadly, it's a utopia. I would love for us to get there. And the real question is how, and what are the more compelling examples that have shown us how we can get there? What we've seen is we've never really seen a full circular economy. We've never really seen, I haven't seen with my own eyes, a degrowth model. Totally. So degrowth and strategy is actually like a very robust area of debate right now. And um, there's actually a book coming out co-edited by some of my peers at degrowth.info. I keep on the lookout for that. Yeah. And so all that to say, degrowthers draw on a number of different theories of transformation, theories of change. Eric Rowland is someone who's been very influential in this way of thinking. And specifically, not to get too technical, but there's these symbiotic ways of change, collaborating with existing institutions, large-scale social institutions to try to nudge systems towards more ecologically conscious and socio socially equitable ways of existence. There's also these interstitial approaches, which are more of the bottom-up things. So, you know, finding the cracks in existing systems and building alternatives within these cracks. And then there's also the ruptural approaches, I guess, which, you know, in moments of crises, using moments of crises to then center degrowth. And so I guess concrete examples of all of these small-scale practices like community fridges, childcare, neighborhood childcare networks, housing co-ops, local time banks, all of these local 
um, small scale practices, I would say are part of degrowth. And to me, those would fall under the uh, interstitial approach in which we have these autonomous grassroots actors building alternatives at the ground level. Degrowth also includes large scale policy proposals. So proposals for, you know, federal care income. So for unpaid care work that is done at a home, minimum and maximum income, reduced working hours. So these are, I guess, these um, symbiotic approaches. So collaborating with state or federal governments to enact these policies that are more aligned with degrowth futures. And then in terms of peripheral approaches, you know, we can look at the onset of the COVID-19 where you had all these mutual aid networks spring up because people were not unable to get the access to resources that they needed to live. And so all these mutual aid networks emerged from this rupture of existing systems. Yeah, I, I, I would say all of that embodies degrowth. In terms of like a utopia and how do we get there? Something I've seen in the literature is this idea of like a concrete utopia or a now utopia. So how can we fundamentally change how we're living like literally right now. And how can that transformation be a part of these larger, more abstracted transformations that are part of degrowth? And that's something I also found very compelling about this topic or this thing is that it truly does range from like the large scale political macro social systems to even discussions of like small scale, intimate, personal like transformations. And it acknowledges that transformation needs to happen across all of these scales. Um, across all sectors. And in terms of more discussions of strategy, I would definitely say check out the book <laughs> coming out, Degrowth and Strategy. You're also speaking about small-scale projects and not redesigning the whole system. You're also involved in a housing cooperative, you know, what we can do in our own lives. I always ask myself, I would love for all this to be organized. <laughs> the transition is always difficult. And so the question really is asking yourself, how much personal autonomy are you prepared to sacrifice for this, which I think is a wonderful, healthy way of living that would also give us more time for our family and our loved ones. So we're not flattened by globalization. And, and we know the amount of discontent, which I guess we'll go into as well with your social media project. But you yourself, if you ask yourself, what would you sacrifice in terms of personal autonomy? Would you give it up to a corporation if they could organize all this? Or would you give it up to a city state if they could organize all this, but we wouldn't have the enormous climate change pollution and all these other problems? Yeah, I think that's an interesting question. In terms of like how much autonomy I would give up, I guess my mind goes to um, decision-making processes that the housing co-op member part of Degrowth at Info that we, we operate on a consensus-based decision-making process. As I understand, all of our decisions, unless there is like strong resistance to something, then we move forward with it. And if there is strong resistance, then we talk it through and find out some sort of compromise that meets the need that needs to be met without you know, impinging upon someone else's needs. And so in the context of autonomy, yeah, in, in like a scale of my housing co-op, right? Let's say someone painted the bathroom a certain color that I'm like, yeah, this is fine. <laughs> but in terms of, I guess, at the city level, this also speaks to issues of, I guess, participatory democracy versus a representative democracy. And to me, degrowth is very, at least from my perspective, um, degrowth very much embraces participatory democracy in which people are actually having direct decision-making power over their current conditions. And in that instance, I think at a higher moral scale, system, I think a participatory democratic system is a lot more complicated because there's just a lot more voices at hand and a lot more needs that needs to be balanced. But should it be a consensus-based decision-making process, then ideally whatever decision is made does not come at the cost of someone's core beliefs or core values. And instead, everyone is at least okay with living with this decision. And I think when it comes to sacrificing autonomy, I think that is often what we see with a representative democracy where 
And oftentimes what we see are these elected officials operating not on the behalf of their constituents. And another way to answer the question too is, I guess, just looking at what autonomy is. And I know Cornelius Castoriadis is an influential philosopher for degrowth, and he writes a lot about autonomy. I haven't personally read his stuff, but from my understanding, autonomy, the, the concept of limits is baked into this understanding of autonomy. That to have autonomy is to have power over our current conditions, but only to the extent that this power doesn't infringe upon someone else's power over their own current, like their own lived conditions. And so this idea of self-contained power is uh, a part of discussions of autonomy and degrowth circles. So already there is this acknowledgement that no person's reach can be extending and that they're all, there has to be some degree of sacrifice or letting go over certain things. Okay, so it is really nice to invite another Penn student to share inspirational ideas. I read a few articles on the idea of degrowth. And from what I've read, the idea is really about reorganizing our society and our social consciousness to become more centered on human well-being and sustainability rather than on material accumulation, production, and economic growth. This idea really reminds me about donut economy, a concept proposed by Dr. Kate Rayworth. And I really feel these two concepts complement one another. So I wonder if you have looked into their relationships. And for me personally, I'm invested in the circular economy. And I wonder what circular economy might do to promote degrowth. Yeah, definitely. I, I came across the donut economy concept years before I came across degrowth, but they're definitely very much related. I think Kate Raworth even mentioned degrowth in some of her publications, though I think she prefers the term a growth, but don't quote me on that. But yeah, I think they're very much aligned with each other because, you know, degrowth is all about reimagining new ways of um, structuring the economy, right? As opposed to uh, a, a neoliberal market economy, what are other kind of, you know, care economy, solidarity economy, circular economies, and this concept of just this social foundation, meeting the social foundation within an ecological ceiling, I think is, yeah, very core to degrowth schools of satisfying needs in minimally harmful ways and in fact, regenerative ways in terms of ecological processes. And for, in terms of circular economy, yeah, there's actually one article from a degrowth, from a perspective that looks at the circular economy, critiques it because if I remember correctly, the, the authors are writing that it's not politicized enough. You know, it's great from a material and energetic throughput concept. It's really great to think about reusing materials and trying to reduce the amount of waste or even like reconceptualizing our understanding of what waste is. But if that new understanding of the economy is not paired with an explicit political framing, then it's liable or subject to be co-opted by capitalistic discourses. And so I think a degrowth perspective on the circular economy, a, a circular economy is a necessary part of degrowth transformations, but as of anything, it has to be politicized since degrowth is ultimately uh, at its core, like a political project as well. I see. Because the part where you talk about how circular economy is really focused on material flow and the physical movement and the prolonged service of resources, that is really the focus, if not the core of circular economy. And I recently read this article comparing circular economy to sustainability and talks about how these two concepts are not really interchangeable. Because circular economy seems to focus on the economic and the environmental side of things, but neglect the social, political, or social justice aspect of sustainability. Like you said, it seems very physical. It's almost like an engineering concept, not a social concept. Yeah, but should those things be you know, paired together, then I think it can be a very impactful thing. All right. So another question I have is, 
that I try to talk about degrowth with my family, but I don't know how to actively engage them about this concept because even for me, this idea is new and to be honest, a bit abstract. Do you have any recommendations for people who want to talk about degrowth with their loved ones? Also, like, how do you see degrowth as being part of a larger public discussion? Yeah, to your first question, one of my peers at degrowth.info actually wrote a nice blog post about how to talk to about degrowth with your family. They had some nice tips, but I guess in general, just meeting people where they're at in terms of, I guess, their level of like political consciousness or ecological consciousness and just meeting them where they're at there. And then just providing concrete examples that they can relate with. Perhaps there's like a, a restaurant that your family likes to go to or something or, or, or a grocery store and that frequently they throw out all this food waste. And that this is just an instance in which resources that are being used that are just ultimately going to waste and not fulfilling needs and perhaps using that as a way to open up conversations about transforming larger scale economic thought and practices. I also think degrowth is like necessarily a contentious word. People talk about how degrowth, like this is a degrowth, a repost growth, is this a growth. Degrowth, at least currently, is like the stable word because it's so antithetical to neoliberal discourses and, sub and therefore it's unlikely to be co-opted by capitalism. But I think, yeah, decentering the idea that degrowth ultimately is about socio-ecological well-being, I think is one way of uh, approaching this. I think it's also important for me to say too that degrowth is not without its critiques. And I think some very rightful critiques that um, others may bring up in terms of introducing this concept to people. One critique, common critique is whether degrowth equates to a recession, which is not necessarily the case because reducing the GDP of a nation's economy is not necessarily a goal of degrowth. Though the topic of GDP is another contested thing in degrowth discourses. But yeah, at the core degrowth is just this planned downscaling of the economy. And beyond reducing how much we produce, consume, or extract also lies this need to fundamentally transform our understanding of what the economy is. And that, that is also like a core of degrowth. Um, and another common critique comes from the relationship between the, the global North and the global South. And because degrowth originated in Europe and still primarily remains a Eurocentric concept, a lot of people as scholars, especially from the global South highlight that like there's the threat that degrowth Zegraf runs the risk of becoming another concept that uh, perpetuates colonial continuities in which uh, the global North established a dominance over the global South by setting the agenda on ways of existence and global affairs once again. Scholars also respond to this critique by highlighting that degrowth should be seen not as like the end-all be-all. This is the framework that the entire world needs to operate on because obviously that is not the case. Instead, it should be seen as one, one movement, one idea that is aligning with, you know, a wide array of other ideas and movements in the global South that already exists. Degrowth just seeks to be one, one concept within this pluriverse of ideas that ultimately seeks to facilitate this transformation towards collective flourishing and liberation. I'm so glad you touched on some of the critique for degrowth, especially the point on how it might impact developing countries. Like earlier this week, I read this report on how circular economy might impact developing countries and what needs to be done to make circular economy truly beneficial and uplifting to all. So I was wondering if the same critique holds true for degrowth as well. And for me, if I need to discuss degrowth with my family, then the challenge really is to make a good point on why a country like China 
which worked hard for the last 40 years and just came out of abstract poverty, need to embrace something like degrowth. Yeah, definitely. And I, I would say, at least from my perspective, degrowth primarily is something for rich and industrialized countries in the global north, and specifically like the wealthy portions of the global north. Because once again, I think context specificity is another thing that is really important to talk about or to keep in mind when talking about degrowth, because obviously not all things need to degrow. And that is something that degrowthers try to emphasize, right? I mean, here in the United States, for example, the prison industrial complex or the petrochemical industry, these are things that do need to degrow. But other things, right, like community-owned institutions or participatory democracy, these are things that do need to grow or expand or deepen. And in terms of what does degrowth mean for the Global South, there are some thoughts that degrowth in the Global North would facilitate self-determination in the Global South because the Global North is no longer, ex you know, having this extractive relationship. And there's also critique to that, once again, saying that degrowth in the Global North can and will have repercussions on the global south, just given the interconnected nature of our globalized realities. And so I guess, yeah, just to that, I think context specificity is just also important because you to say how one, how degrowth in one sector, another sector in another country. But yeah, I think also a part of this too is international solidarity. I think labor is another thing that is important to degrowth. And I think labor organizing across countries in an international context is very important. And so I think there also is some degree of this understanding that there is a need for international solidarity in terms of working class people coming together and organizing to better their living conditions. And what levels of taxation to encourage a kind of transition to degrowth or circular economy have you looked at? I, I don't know how successful we would be in um, putting those across. <laughs> yes. I personally haven't dove too much into the tax policy side of things. There, there's this concept of a minimum and maximum income, which I guess is nothing new, but making sure that the lowest paid worker, the, the, making sure that the highest paid worker in a company is only paid a certain amount more than the lowest paid worker. So I guess there's this ratio just to ensure that like the CEO isn't being paid like 200 times more than the lowest paid person. I think like a, a wealth tax would also be very much a line of degrowth. I haven't necessarily seen people talk about that, but I'm sure there are people looking at that. But in terms of concrete examples, I would say it looks to Europe. <laughs> there are people running for office under the banner of degrowth or explicitly talking about degrowth. And so I think there's a lot of exciting things there to look at in terms of how degrowth is playing out in like the actual the elected political arena. We were talking in the UK with Jeff Morgan about this and about taxation of products that have not been recycled or aren't circular. But in the US, you're talking about there's politicians running on degrowth. Not in the US. I haven't seen anyone here, unfortunately. But I think I would be very surprised or pleased and excited to see someone run explicitly on the degrowth platform here in the States. But I, I've yet to see that. Yeah, it's a little radical. We know even the word socialism is recoiled at. Yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> When I first started learning about sustainability, my intention has always been to increase human well-being while maintaining or restoring the glorious ecosystems of Earth. Somehow this idea manifests in my head as a promise for continued economic growth, both accumulation and ecosystem prosperity. This idea drove me to study circular economy and so many other sustainability thoughts throughout my years as a student. However, with time, I started to understand the folly behind my initial conception of what sustainability is. 
With concepts such as degrowth and the donut economy entering my world, I realized that sustainability is built on self-control and moderation, not hedonism. One common concept demonstrating our need for self-moderation is our ecological footprint. It has been calculated that if everyone lived like an American, we need as much as four Earths to sustain us. Scaling down our consumption does require us to make sacrifices. Still, these may be necessary to avoid a future when the ecosystem can no longer support us and the world toils under increased inequity. However, sacrifices mentioned here does not necessarily mean that we need to go through a period of suffering, but rather a process of changing our life's outlook. Buddhist teachings mentioned how desire and ignorance lie at the root of all suffering. By tuning down our desire, we may be on a journey to discover spiritual enlightenment and harmony with the planet. Another mistake we make when talking about continued economic growth is that we often equate it to human well-being. We think, matter-of-factly, that economic growth means an increase in human standard of living. However, this runs the risk of replacing our end goal of increased human prosperity with one means of achieving it, which is economic growth, to the point that we pour all our resources into cracking numbers such as GDP, but never questioned if it actually does improve our lives. I think degrowth offers a new way of thinking, an avenue of self-reflection and making the necessary corrections. Here, I would like to quote Robert F. Kennedy, the former U.S. Senator of New York and the 64th Attorney General, who famously remarked that GDP measures neither our wit nor our courage, neither our wisdom nor our learning, neither our compassion nor our devotion to our country. It measures everything, in short, except that which makes life worthwhile. Not to mention that research from institutions such as the Gallup World Poll data found that although GDP does contribute to national happiness, explaining about 56% of the difference across countries, it also exhibits the property of diminishing returns, and happiness generally plateaus as the average income of a society reaches $70,000. All this means is that we need to recenter ourselves. No longer should we be ensnared by economic growth, Rather, we need to re-examine our society and our social consciousness. Our consideration of prosperity should be more nuanced, more varied, and measure those things that do make our life worth living. Another element of your other project is about social media. And I think that there's a kind of through line between both of these modes of thinking, it's like a deceleration. And growth is not always positive. Too much communication or too much, in terms of social media, give rise to, as we've seen, a lot of negative communications. And so tell us what you're doing with that project and you've analyzed different social media platforms. Yes, yeah, so my master's research focuses on looking at social media through a degrowth lens. And there's actually an entire subfield of degrowth scholarship that's called degrowth and technology, which looks at technology's role in these socio-ecological transformations pursued by degrowthers. And specifically, I'm using concepts in the literature called conviviality, which was first formulated by Ivan Illich, an Austrian-born priest and critic philosopher um, who, who wrote a number of texts in the 1970s that sharply uh, analyzed industrial ways of life. And so in a 1973 book, Tools for Conviviality, 
he introduces this concept as a means of critiquing or his, his main argument throughout his work is that the tools, which he uses to refer to anything that is designed and created to satisfy a need, which includes like literal objects, like a hammer to social institutions, like hospital, these are all things that we design and create in order to satisfy a need. Illich's argument is that tools oftentimes are surpassing a boundary beyond which they begin to produce more harm than good. And so he goes into a lot more technical, uh, I guess, theoretical detail about what conviviality entails. He calls it a multiple balance. So there's five different balances that all need to be maintained in order for the quality of conviviality to be emerged. And so I'm looking at, at social media and concretely, I, I collected data on six social media, Facebook, TikTok, Twitter, Decidim, Mastodon, and iNaturalist. And I'm using this lens of conviviality to analyze the different components of social media. And I guess one of the main conclusions of my research is that I, I, I guess I'm offering this new understanding of social media that is more aligned with degrowth transformations because the ways we perceive of something impacts the ways we relate to it. And current perceptions of social media are dominated by corporate narratives. But in my research, I'm formulating this concept of a convivial social media ecosystem. So I'm invoking the concept of a media ecosystem, which is, you know, a commonly used analogy, but in, in doing that, I'm trying to be explicitly ecological by bringing in the concepts of ecosystem structure and ecosystem function. So much like how ecosystem structure refers to the biotic and abiotic components that relate to one another in a given context, social media structure or ecosystem structure looks at the different components of, of that make up a social media. So in other words, my understanding of social media is broken down into these distinct components of social media's business model. Like it's interface design, it's affordances, it's network topology, it's scale, it's, oh gosh, technologies, like the technology that underpin it. And so I'm looking at these concrete components through the lens of conviviality and making analytical claims about these types of components are more convivial or more aligned with the degrowth transformation. And these types of components are not. So for example, like a, a surveillance capitalistic business model that is, you know, characteristic of. Facebook, TikTok, Twitter, in which their main mode of profit generation is based off of collecting data on user activity, analyzing that through a number of algorithms, and then, you know, making predictions about our behavior and then selling our attention to marketers and advertisers. That type of business model is distinctly not aligned with degrowth because it, you know, feeds this sensationalization that we see on social media, this polarization on social media, because it's all about accumulating attention so we can gain more likes, more views, more profit. This growthism is very apparent. Alternative to that, you also have these counter hegemonic business models like on, on Mastodon, for example, which is a decentralized and federated Twitter alternative um, where ads are banned on Mastodon. Surveilling capitalism would not be possible because ads are like a crucial part of this business or this political economic arrangement and ads have literally are not possible on Mastodon. And instead what you see on Mastodon, which tricky to describe how that's different from Twitter, but as opposed to one website. Or when we go on Twitter.com, we are accessing an interface that is hosted on, you know, a central hub of servers that is owned by Twitter, the corporation. In contrast, there is no singular Mastodon website or instance. Instead, Mastodon is made up of this universe of independent and autonomous websites that are hosted on infrastructure that are owned and operated by, or most often owned and operated by the administrators of that instance. And so it's like similar to Reddit in which there's all these autonomous subreddits, but now think of each subreddit was actually its own like website on its own infrastructure, as opposed to going back to Reddit. And so all that to say, there are some going back to business model, there are some 
many Mastodon instances that are actually just community funded. So there's like this crowdfunding aspect of it where people are, you know, directly supporting the administrators of this instance because they derive great benefit from this and they want to support it. So profit coming from the people as opposed to profit coming from exploitation. So that, those are the kinds of things I'm thinking about in terms of you know, these types of components are more gigger aligned and these ones are not. I have to say I'm not as active and I don't even know Mastodon and, and I have a very, <laughs> uh, limited experience, I guess, since I rarely buy, very rarely buy things online. So that means my experience has been quite positive and it's all educational. But one thing we were talking with Nicholas Christakis, who's the director of the Human Nature Lab at Yale, and you probably know their work and they have projects around bots that who would influence because it's about networks bots can influence us in the social media realms but you can also program bots engineer this kind of conviviality and although unfortunately i believe there's a lot more of the other kind of bots or algorithms that are negatively incentivized but it's like an antidote to to what we're experiencing yeah yeah i think that's really interesting just on on the topic of bots just going back to mastodon if there's actually a little icon that Mastodon puts on every post that is created by a bot account just to indicate that it's a bot, which is something that we don't see on other social media where, you know, who knows if it's a bot because there's no, you, we can make guesses based off of the post's account history and what they're saying or the profile's account or post history. But yeah, on the, on the topic of algorithms, I think I'll just go back to this concept of autonomy. And I think another instance in which social media is more aligned with degrowth is if it's source code open and accessible and it's open source, it's free software. So anyone has the autonomy to then um, take this software and then fiddle with it and then make it their own. And we don't see that with corporate platforms, right? Their source code is more or less launched down. The things that they do open up are oftentimes just third-party APIs. So they open up software that third-party developers can then use to build up their own tools that interact with the corporate platform. But this kind of opening up of their software is purely just for the sake of, you know, expanding this social media's reach into other aspects of the internet. Whereas something like Mastodon or Desideem, these platforms are open source or these networks are open source. And on the topic of Desideem, I'll just, I'll be remiss not to talk about it because this is perhaps the one that I'm most excited by after my research. So Desideem is this platform designed to facilitate civic participation. And it emerged in Barcelona, I think in 2016, when the Barcelona City Council put forth earlier versions of Desideem to facilitate the creation of the city's municipal action plan. And since then it's evolved into this suite of tools that it's this platform that contains a number of tools that directly, that are designed to directly facilitate collective decision-making processes. So cities use it. For example, like New York City uses it to facilitate a number of programs, including their participatory budgeting. Individual districts, people can then sign up to, let's say there's a period for proposals for how to allocate this budget. Uh, people can submit proposals and then other people can endorse these proposals. And then people have direct say to fix up the sidewalk on this street or this proposal to fix a playground at this park or this neighborhood. And then once this voting process ends, then you have these projects that in you know, the community quite literally voted on like the community. And this is all facilitated by destiny. And this is something that I would say is like impossible in other platforms, right? Like theoretically, you could try to do something like this in a Facebook group, but just given the way Facebook is designed and just given like all of the social history behind Facebook, I think something like this would be very difficult on that platform. But something like Destiny, I'm really excited by because it's a platform that is explicitly designed to politicize our use of digital technology. 
and also politicize it in such a way that recenters individual and collective autonomy at smaller scales. And in, in the degrowth world, we actually use this for the eighth international degrowth conference. And that, that was another instance in which Decidim is free software. So anyone is able to use it, make their own Decidim instance and fiddle with it, whatever way they see fit. It, it's designed for groups to use, and that includes you know, at the municipal level, a nonprofit level, an organizational level, all the way down to five or six people who just need to make, want to use the software. It's, it's available for them. Yeah, that, that, that's why I plug for Decidim to look into that. This new social network platform sounds really cool. They're fascinating. And I would love to take a look at your research. But on another note, I'm wondering if you know any macroeconomic models that people can take a look at to understand degrowth from a more hardcore scientific perspective. First on the topic of sharing research, I'm actually making a short film based off of my master's research that is set to premiere in September. That is a whole thing. I have an acting background and arts background, so I'm trying to incorporate that into like science communication. But to your question, I, let's see, and I tend to operate in like the small scale <laughs> bottom up approaches, but I do know in terms of like macroeconomic frameworks, ecological economics comes to mind. And that is like a whole other transdisciplinary field that is quite established that is very much interconnected with sea growth. And I, I did an independent study in the fall of this past year where I read this textbook cover to cover, which I've never done. <laughs> Which is quite interesting, but yeah, just to talk about that briefly, it's ecological economics. If the neoliberal economy's sole goal is to allocate resources in the most efficient and profitable manner, ecological economy instead has three main goals. First is to, before even thinking about profit, is to first establish a sustainable scale. At what size is this economy like good enough to keep itself going without producing you know, negative externalities? And then once that is established, the second goal is to find just distribution. So making sure that all the benefits and even all the harms are equally distributed as opposed to what we see with environmental injustices, where all these negative externalities from a, a polluting refinery or like a waste dump are subjected to poor black and brown communities. Instead, ensuring that these harms and benefits are distributed evenly. And once that goal has been met, then we can finally concern ourselves with thinking about efficient allocation of resources. In terms of like macroeconomic way of thinking, I would definitely recommend looking into ecological economics just because it truly is like a discipline that seeks to transform our understanding of ways of existence in explicitly economic terms. And so I would just suggest that. And I'm asking this because I remember how Dr. Kate mentioned in her Donut Economy book, how our current teachings of economics is firmly based on this continual growth of the capitalist system. And this kind of old teachings no longer speaks to our current challenges. And the new economists of the 21st century need to learn a different type of economy and think in a different way. Another thing is that I believe if we can present a concrete economic model for degrowth, then it will be much easier for us to pitch this idea to governments and civil societies because we have hardcore numbers. And numbers are much more persuasive than ideas and words. Governments today rest their legitimacy on improved standards of living. And in most cases, this translates into the promise of continued economic growth. So then the question becomes, how do you decouple this mandate of the government to uplift people from economic growth? Let's see, unfortunately, I'm not the most studied in terms of like macroeconomic theory in a degrowth context, but I can confidently say that any economic framework that does come out of degrowth scholarship will be politicized. And I think I'll just, this relates back to the circular economy that economic discussions need to be political because they are political. And so when we think about how do we transform you know, the economy at a large scale, we also need to think about what 
is like the everyday person's role in that transformation? And what is that everyday person's role in you know, determining how the economy is shaped? But yeah, when it comes to uh, how to translate that into like something that's digestible and accessible to someone, unfortunately, I, I, I don't have the best answer for that right now. And I will say to your point about bringing numbers, I do think that the quantification of things are useful for that kind of purpose. But I also think I would, I think a degrowth, degrowther would critique this process of quantifying everything because I think that process of quantification is a part of this growthist mindset. So some things can't be quantified. Some things are better just left as a quality and trying to translate everything into numbers then allows this number to grow. The potential for this number to grow exists. And given the context, that may or may not be a good thing. I believe in as a concept. I'm not sure that we can dismantle capitalism. I'm sure that there's certain elements that we can take on board. I just think there would be too much resistance. So in terms of uh, alternative capitalist models that aren't the uh, extreme form that is in the US, uh, you know, what can we learn from other capitalists or other economic models and incorporate degrowth into those so that we can undo the damage created by capitalism and the supply change in our throwaway culture. Speaking from like my technological perspective, the right to repair movement that I think really came out of France, that is now seeping into even the United States is something that I think is exciting. Just this acknowledgement that users or consumers need to have the right to repair any device or product that they purchase and that products need to be designed in such a way that they can be repaired or be modular. In terms of concrete examples of other capitalistic nations, I don't know. <laughs> I struggled to think of examples just because degrowth is so distinctly anti-capitalist in nature. But to your point about lessons that can be gleaned from capitalist economies, I'll speak from like an ecological economics perspective, right? Like even in ecological economics, the, the market still exists in like an ecological economy. Because the market is a useful thing for facilitating transactions in like a very easy and accessible way. And so I guess in that instance, perhaps the degrowth can look to good examples of the market, the market operating within a certain scale. But in terms of like concrete examples of countries doing that, I, I don't have the best answer to that right now. And you spoke briefly about your background in theater. Why did you make that transition? So... I studied acting in undergrad and a part of my program, we spent our junior year studying abroad in London at Shakespeare's Globe. And so this was the fall of 2017 when um, Hurricane Harvey was hitting Houston and when these, all these wildfires were ripping through Northern California. And I grew up in these two places. My family was in Houston at the time and we still are in Houston. And I just remember being thousands of miles away from these places I called home, <laughs> reading the news and like keep, keeping updated with my family about how climate change intensified natural disasters are just afflicting these areas. And then having to walk into class, like say, don't talk about Titus Andronicus and read Shakespeare and all this. And I just felt dissatisfied with my role in terms of like ecological change. I think that's really when I politicize, uh, like a politicized person and like more ecologically conscious. And so, yeah, from there, I decided to minor in sustainability studies at my undergrad institution. And then from there, that led me to pursue um, environmental studies at the master's level. And um, here I am now. And I guess in terms of how I found degrowth, funnily enough, you know, I studied Twitter and degrowth, but I actually found degrowth on Twitter, <laughs> which I think once again, speaks to the utility of these corporate platforms, the ability to communicate with the large amounts of people. But I think beyond, certain, beyond a certain scale, I think more harm than good is produced. I think we all have to learn how to scale back our usage and just use it intelligently. And it is a great way to bring things out there, as you say, with Desideem. And so as you think about the future and the kind of world that you want to live in, 
what have been some important life lessons for you and how do you prioritize the changes that you'd like to take place? I think the importance of centering care in everything, I think is something I, I continue to learn in a very embodied sense, especially like living in a housing co-op where we have eight different people with eight different backgrounds work and living together. And yeah, I think in a part of that, like care is not a clean and easy, fun, happy process. It can be like very hard and difficult and yeah, just understanding how to navigate that. How, and also a part of that, like healing, how do we heal? as, you know, a species at a very like personal, but also collective level. And I think, you know, how to do that, once again, is dependent on context, but in any interaction, any process, I think just care and healing needs to be prioritized. I think I, I learned a lot from my peers in degrowth spheres. Oftentimes, like, since degrowth is a challenging concept, I continue to be challenged by the things I read or interact with coming out of the degrowth sphere. And I'd say living, engaging with all the different organizing circles that I'm involved with has also been a really great uh, source of life lessons. You know, Degrowth.info has been a really great introduction to the degrowth sphere and organizing at an international context digitally, which is interesting. It presents so many challenges. Um, living in a housing co-op has really been great just to learn like what organizing means at a very personal and intimate level. You know, making an agenda item to talk about how we handle dishes. Right. It's seemingly like a superfluous thing, but that is an important thing. Like this is care work that is necessary for the reproduction of life. And when we're trying to live in an intentional community, we need to have a chance to actually talk about it. And that has also been very important. So I agree. The organizing too has also been a great source of life lessons. It seems like you really have formed a life of meaning and purpose. And that's what we all want. Thank you, Casey Legacion, for the example of your commitment to this planet and to modifying our means of consumption, for asking important questions about how we can degrow social media and promote an evolution in the way we participate in our economy, interact with each other and the natural world. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to the One Planet Podcast. Thank you for having me. The One Planet Podcast is supported by the Yan Mashowski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Yan Zongli, with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interview producer on this podcast was Yan Zongli. Digital media coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Hagenbarth. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you would like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.info. Thank you for listening.